The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel. We're in uh, Daniel chapter 9 today as we uh, continue our study through the book of of Daniel. And uh, as we turn the page to Daniel chapter 9, we're preparing to ascend the Mount Everest of Old Testament Bible prophecy. Uh, Some would consider the final verses of Daniel chapter 9 to be the most significant prophecy in all of the Old Testament and the most difficult prophecy to interpret in the Old Testament. And that's saying a lot uh, because we remember Daniel chapter 8 and that was challenging enough. Uh, But it's like just after we finished scaling the the mountain of Daniel chapter 8, we finally reached the top with cramped muscles and out of breath. We look ahead and there's an even larger mountain that we need to climb. And Daniel chapter 9 is that mountain. Entire books have been written on the final verses of Daniel chapter 9. Theologians have turned to this chapter over and over again uh, to wrestle with the end time theology that's present here, and the struggle is real in this text. Uh, If you look at uh, chapter uh, 9 and verse 24, it speaks about the, the 70 weeks which have been decreed for your people. What's that all about? And how does that bring an end of sin? What is that? What are the the 7 and 62 weeks in verse 25? And how does that relate to Messiah, the prince? That's significant. Daniel's moving beyond the beast and the the horns, and now he's talking about the Messiah, and we need to understand what he's saying about him. What does it mean for the Messiah to be cut off and have nothing in verse 26? And finally, who is Daniel talking about in verse 27 who makes a covenant and then breaks it in the middle of the week? And these are all important questions that deserve our attention, and they They fit in with the the entire complex of end-time prophecy. But it's important that we keep this entire chapter in context because the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer. It's Daniel pouring out his soul before God in adoration, confession, and supplication. It all began with a prayer. This is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Daniel It's one of the the longest prayers that we have anywhere in the Old Testament. It's powerful, it's fervent, it's sincere, it's effectual. And this prayer will be so instructive, it's going to be so instructive for us, uh, because even though we might not physically be in the city of of Babylon, as believers, we're still a long way from home, aren't we? And Daniel teaches us how to pray as exiles, as sojourners, uh, looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is, is God. So Daniel is is one of us, and he prays as a model of a weary pilgrim who's a long way from home. So let's turn our attention to to Daniel uh, chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in, the name to, in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, And our fathers, because we have sinned against you, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him 
nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus, he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we, we hear the words of, of Daniel. And Father, in, in some ways, these words appear foreign to us because they're so seldom on the lips of believers today. Uh, that we're truly coming before you, broken-hearted, confessing our sins. Uh, Father, I pray that, that this would be the, the attitude of our hearts, uh, that we would come before you as uh, the God who is the great one, the majestic one, uh, the, the one who, who rules over, over all. Righteousness belongs to you, God, but to us belongs shame because we've sinned against you. And Father, I do pray that you would forgive us of our sins. And Father, I pray that today that you'd help us as we uh, uh, enter into this chapter. And Father, that you would uh, give us understanding. And I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible lets us know that the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous accomplishes much. And uh, much was accomplished by Daniel's prayer. Not only was this uh, prayer answered, by a prophecy at the end of the, the chapter, but it was also answered by a personal message from Gabriel, who was sent from heaven to answer Daniel in the prayer that he gave before the Lord. If you look uh, ahead in chapter 9 and verse 20, it says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weakness, weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gets a, a visit from heaven. And he says that, I'm come to give you instruction. And he talked with Daniel. I've come forth to give you insight and understanding. If we had any doubt about whether or not Daniel's prayer life was effective, that should be enough to erase all doubt that he actually had an angel to show up personally to say that we've, we've got the message Daniel was somebody who was highly esteemed, according to verse 23. At verse 23, it says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Daniel was highly esteemed. In Ezekiel chapter 14, uh, Daniel is mentioned of, as one of three men who would be rescued by his righteousness. The other two are Noah and Job. Daniel is regarded as a model servant, a preeminent example of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 33, it says, By faith he shut the mouths of lions. And Daniel was so committed to prayer, to praying three times every day, that he was even willing to be cast into what? Into a lion's den. Willing to be cast into the den of lions. I'd rather be the lunch for, for the animals rather than neglect my time in prayer. That's the kind of heart that Daniel had. I'd rather be lunch meat than miss my quiet time. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he opened his windows, just as he had did before, toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to the Lord. If you really want to know where the power of Daniel's life came from, you'd eventually have to be led back up to that roof chamber where we prayed three times every day and knelt before the Lord. Many of you know that the name uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 19th century English preacher, pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, He's been called the, the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers England ever produced. And at one time, a group of young ministers came to visit Charles Spurgeon uh, to try to determine why his ministry was so successful. And after showing them the, the massive sanctuary that he preached in, Spurgeon offered to show them the boiler room. You know, many of the young ministers uh, declined. It's like, why would I want to go into the, the boiler room? I mean, you know, the power's here, right? You know, we're in the sanctuary where you preach from. But he, he he urged them, and, and they, they went, and they followed him. And Spurgeon led them down to a basement where they found about 100 people in prayer. And he let them know that if they wanted to know where the power came from, this is where it came from. 
the power of prayer. And the same was true in, in Daniel's life. If we want to know why Daniel was who he was, why he had the kind of life that he did, you'd eventually be led back to that roof chamber where he prayed before the Lord three times a day. That was his boiler room. That's where the power came from. It was in his prayers. And the same was true for Jesus. As the disciples examined his life, they eventually came to the conclusion that there is something distinct about the way that he prays. So in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's, that's so significant. They didn't ask him, Lord, teach us to preach like you do. I mean, the way you move the crowds is just so amazing. Lord, teach us to do the, the miracles like you do. I mean, that walking on water thing is really impressive. They, they don't say any of those things, but they do ask him, Lord, can you teach us to pray like you do? There's something distinct about the way that you pray. And they recognize that the power came in his prayers. In the wilderness, in the mountains, the gardens where Jesus prayed, that's where the, the power came from. That was the boiler room. And he was strengthened in prayer, just like we see in Matthew 4, Luke 22. Even the angels came to minister to him while he prayed. And in Daniel chapter 9, we're taken to Daniel's boiler room where an angel even came to minister to him. And the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availed much. So if you want a crash course on effective prayer, you need to register for Daniel's prayer class 101 in Daniel chapter 9. And he teaches us here by, by not by precept, but by example. His example is the teacher. And in broad terms, this text answers three questions about powerful prayer. Number one, what provokes powerful prayer? Verses one and two. Uh, number two, what's the posture of powerful prayer? In verses three to four. And then what is the pattern of powerful prayer? The second half of verse four down to verse 19. The, the provocation, the posture, and the pattern of prayer. So let's take a look at the first point. What is it that provokes powerful prayer? Look again at verse one. It says, in the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. What's the context of this powerful prayer? It was the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. And this introduces us to a significant shift that takes place in chapter 9. And that shift is introduced to us by the words, in the first year of Darius. We were introduced to Darius back in chapter 5 and verse 31. Uh, where it says that uh, Darius or Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age 62. Uh, this was a, a subordinate to Cyrus the Great who ruled over Babylon. And this is the same Darius that sent Daniel to the lion's den. The name Darius was actually a, a regal name or a kingly name. It was uh, common for kings to take on names that signified their authority when they became kings. And the name Darius means hero among rulers. That's what his name meant. Or the holder of the scepter. And there were a number of Persian kings who took on that name, you know, the, the, the hero among rulers. I mean, they were obviously very humble men. And uh, that was the case for this Median governor. Uh, and his name, his actual name was Gabaru. He, uh, Gabaru. He was uh, underneath Cyrus the Great. He was a, a governor. But he shows up often, uh, he showed up often in the ancient texts as the governor of Babylon, the region and the region beyond the river. And his career follows the same path of Daniel chapter 6. He's a historical figure. And immediately after the fall of Babylon, this Gabara, who was named Darius, was installed as the, the, the ruler and appointed the, the governor over Babylon. And I point that out because there, there are critics who question the history here, but it's been discovered to be exactly as it's written. And when the Babylonian kingdom passed on to Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, it marked the end of the Babylonian era. Think about that. Daniel has just witnessed the rise and fall of an empire. Daniel was there when the Babylonian kingdom rose to power. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Remember that? That's, that I don't know how many months ago that was. But uh, Daniel was there when the Babylonian kingdom rose to power, besieged Jerusalem. That was the rise of the Babylonian empire. And Daniel was one of the first people to be deported in 605 BC. He was there for that. That was the year that King Nebuchadnezzar defeated uh, the Assyrian and Egyptian armies. And uh, it was that year that Nebuchadnezzar returned to Palestine and attacked Jerusalem and took hostages back, including Daniel. Daniel was there when the Babylonian kingdom rose, and he was there when the Babylonian kingdom fell, when Babylon was defeated by the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. He saw it all. So Daniel, at this point, 
And this is around 539 B.C. when he's writing. At this point, he's writing after an entire era. He's writing after an empire rose and fell because the Babylonians uh, didn't count the, the first year of a, of a king as the king's reign, but the second year, uh, you could even add a year to that. But, but here he is. For about 67 years, he's been in Babylon. And he's been praying for three times a day every day, facing Jerusalem on his knees. He would have worn out a hole in the floor by this point, praying to God every day for 67 years. And some of you have thought that you've been enduring a trial for a long time. Can you imagine praying the same thing for 67 years, three times a day? That was Daniel. He was taken in as a teen, and by this time, he's an old man, likely in his mid-80s, pushing 90 at this point. Daniel's been at this for a long time. So we ask ourselves the question, what is it that provokes powerful prayer? My first answer is this, a prolonged time under tension. Prolonged time under tension. I've heard that a time under tension grows muscles, you know, when you move a weight slower rather than faster, you know, time under tension. Uh, But if that time is is too long, it won't grow your muscles, it'll rip your muscles. (laughs) And it's been a long time that he's been under this pressure, under this weight. And we're often provoked to powerful prayer when we're stretched beyond our natural limits. It's been a long time, Lord. Lord, I've endured all this. I've I've seen a nation rise and fall in my time here. Lord, how much longer do I have to bear up with this? I've mentioned this before, but the Psalms are filled with this kind of question. How long, Lord? Psalm 6, verse 3, my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 35, 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul. Psalm 74, verse 10, how long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Is this just going to go on forever, Lord? Psalm 90, verse 13, do return, O Lord, how long will it be? Be sorry for your servants. Like, take pity on me, Lord. Do you see how long I've been here? Psalm 94 and verse 3, how long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? And a prolonged time under tension can provoke us to prayer. And that's what it did for Daniel. Daniel's been living under this tension for years, decades. Back in chapter 8, we wrapped this up, or tried to wrap it up last week. We learned that Daniel was given a vision of Jerusalem in the future, and he learned that instead of things getting better, that what what would happen? It would only get worse. (laughs) He's looking into the future and and he's seeing that things are only going to get worse in the future. And it's prolonged the tension of his heart. He felt it within his own heart. Look at what he was told back in uh, chapter 8. Look at verse 26. It says, uh, the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is is true. This is a a vision about more destruction to come on Jerusalem. He says, and that's true. But keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Daniel, it's going to be an even longer time than you think. Before Jerusalem gets some relief, And there's nothing that's going to stop it from happening. They're going to face destruction, Daniel. Gabriel says the vision of the evening and mornings is true. Keep it a secret. A better translation for that would be to seal it up, protect it. Uh, It's it's the word that was used to seal a document, not to to hide it, you know, to keep it secret, but, you know, to to preserve it for the person who it was intended for. Obviously, it's not a secret because Daniel wrote it here in chapter 8, right? It's not secret. It's just preserved. It's protected. It's it's, it's reserved for that person to whom it belongs. And until this time, Daniel's just left sitting on this revelation, knowing what's to come. Can't prevent it from happening. The nation that he loves, the people that he loves, are going to be devastated. And it's going to be stretched out for many days. So how does Daniel respond? Look at verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. It, it, it so overwhelmed him that it, it physically, physically took, the, took the wind out of him. Overwhelmed. I'm exhausted. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. I mean, I couldn't remain paralyzed and debilitated. I had to get up and get on with life. But he's weighed down by this burden. My, my city, the people that I love, they're going to be devastated. I was astounded at the vision. There was none to explain it. He knows what's going to happen, but not all the how and the why. And that's the kind of tension that provokes powerful prayer. A prolonged time under tension. Has anybody been there? The prodigal son or daughter that you've been waiting on to return home for years and you wonder, how long, O oh Lord? The marriage that's gone through some vicious cycle for decades, as soon as you think you're turning a corner, you're right back to square one again and you just wonder, how long, Lord? 
tension in family, maybe at the workplace. It's never resolved, and as much as you seek to make peace, it's misunderstood. Evil motives are assigned, and you can never get out of the penalty box, and you wonder, how long, Lord? How long? Maybe it's even a physical affliction that won't let up. That's the kind of tension that provokes powerful prayer. Lord, I'm desperate, and I will not let you go. I need some help here. Lord, will you help me? What is it that provokes powerful prayer? First answer, a prolonged time under tension. Number two, what else provokes powerful prayer? The second answer is this, Scripture under consideration. Scripture under consideration. Look at verse two. It says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books, the books, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This, this is so, so incredibly instructive here. If, if you don't consider the historical context, you'll miss some of the significance of what he's saying here. But the prayer that Daniel is about to record from us comes out of a Bible study. He's been provoked to prayer because he spent some time in the books. First of all, Daniel recognized that these books that he was reading from were actually scripture. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books, the, the word for books, uh, the Hebrew word sefer, in Greek, it's biblos, it's the same word where we get our English Bible from. And it's obvious that these books that he's reading from, or the scrolls that he's reading from, are sacred texts. He considers these sacred texts because he's reading from the prophet Jeremiah. We don't know how Daniel got his hands on a copy of Jeremiah because uh, Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries, and Daniel was exiled from Judah while Jeremiah continued his ministry in Judah. He's still in Jerusalem. So Daniel did not leave Judah with a copy of Jeremiah in his hands. Daniel was exiled in 605 BC, and according to Jeremiah 52, Jeremiah was still ministering in Judah through the fall of Jerusalem in 586. So, so 20 years later, Daniel is now uh, 20 years removed from uh, the writing of Jeremiah. Uh, you, you have uh, uh, Daniel who's, who's left uh, Judah 20 years before, while Jeremiah is still continuing to, to minister. So apparently some of the, the later exiles you know, who came to uh, Babylon afterwards brought with them a copy of Jeremiah's prophecy, and Daniel gets his hands on one of these scrolls. And he's looking at Jeremiah's writings, and he's considering this as the word of the Lord on the same level with the rest of Scripture. Why is that so significant? Daniel didn't have to wait for some kind of Jewish council to get together to recognize this as the word of God. It wasn't some council of the Catholic Church that determined that this was Scripture. It's definitely not some biblical higher critic that determines whether or not this is really Scripture or not. It was the people of God who recognized the voice of God even during the time. You understand that? There, there was no authority over God's Word. God's Word was itself the authority and spoke with authority. Tuck, tuck that one away. The next time somebody tells you that the Catholic Church or some other organization, you know, created the Bible and, you know, they're the ones that, uh, that determined, you know, the Bible, they don't determine anything. They recognize. We recognize the Scripture. We don't determine what Scripture, okay? It's the Scripture itself that has the authority. It's the Scripture which creates us. <laughs> it's not us that creates the, the, the Word of God. Just like Peter, who recognized Paul's writings during his own day as being Scripture, Daniel recognized the writings of Jeremiah in his own day. And he receives these scrolls and he says, this is, this is the word of God. And as he's reading it, he's understanding it literally, grammatically, historically. The number 70 meant 70. It wasn't a symbol for something else. It wasn't a symbol of perfection or whatever else you might want to say 70 means. He used the, the normal rules of grammar to get here, okay? Plain speech, normal language. It wasn't some hidden code that he had to unlock in Jeremiah. You know, it's not like every fifth letter gives you some hidden meaning or message. You know, take the first letter of every word and you get some kind of sentence from that. That's not at all what's going on here. The Bible doesn't need some kind of decoder ring to figure out. You know, it takes some time, but it doesn't take a superpower. And Daniel understood Jeremiah within its historical context. The defeat of the desolation of, and desolation of Jerusalem was a real historical event. He was part of the first deportation, the first desolation, and he's counting the, the years up. He says, it's been about 70 years since that happened. And this is all going to be so helpful for us as we work into the later prophecy to, to come because we want to understand prophecy in the same way that Daniel did. 
and he gives us the blueprint. He doesn't look at prophecy as vague and general, symbolic, unspecified. No, no, it's, it's real history, real events, normal language, real nations. It has to be interpreted, but it's not impossible to interpret. And as he's considering the Word of God, plain speech, normal language, he says, it's, it's been about the time that Jeremiah told us about. It's been about 70 years. And what portion of Jeremiah is Daniel referring to? Flip over to the, the book of, of Jeremiah. Just, just a brief introduction to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was uh, named the weeping what? The weeping prophet. Why, why was he the weeping prophet? Because he had the, the sorrowful task of telling the southern kingdom of Judah that they were heading for destruction. But Jeremiah didn't just have bad news. He, only, he also had some encouraging news. Look at chapter 25 in Jeremiah. Chapter 25. He had some encouraging news in the midst of these desolations. Look at verse 11. He says this, 25 verse 11. He says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Flip over to chapter 29. We've got another indication of the the 70 years. Jeremiah 29. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, it says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And and this is where we find some of the most beloved lines in Scripture, but it's important to understand it within its context. Look at verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. What's that talking about? Specifically, that's talking about the plans that the Lord had to bring Israel from Babylon back to the promised land. That's what that promise was about. The northern kingdom went into captivity in Assyria. The southern kingdom went into captivity into Babylon. Uh, Others fled from Judah and went down into Egypt. And Jeremiah says, you're going to be called back. I'm going to bring you back. And as Daniel is checking his calendar, he's realizing that the desolation of Jerusalem and the time from that desolation that started, it's it's about up now. 66 to 67 years in Babylon, The 70th anniversary is about to come up. It's just around the corner. All this is about to come to an end. That's what Daniel is realizing in chapter 9. So what does Daniel do? Having having just learned that the exile is about to be over, having learned about the plans that the Lord had for the exiles, the plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope, what does Daniel do? Look at verse 3 back in Daniel chapter 9. What does he do having learned about this wonderful news? So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And on the surface, this seems like it's totally out of place, doesn't it? Like, like Daniel, weren't you just told that your, your people are about to go back to... I mean, this is what you've been praying for 67 years. It's about to happen, Daniel. And now you're reading in the Scripture that the time's up? Like, like why aren't you just rejoicing? Oh, why, aren't, why, aren't, why aren't we just like listening to this... this This praise coming from your lips. Why why would you take this as the time to fast and put on sackcloth and throw ashes on your head? I mean, come on, Daniel. I mean, there should be a sigh of relief. Joyful anticipation. What's with the sackcloth and ashes? Isn't this a time to kick back and say, hey, I'm glad that the Lord's got that all under control. Nothing else for me to do. I'll just wait for the plan to unfold. But that's a deficient view of the sovereignty of God. And if your theology hurts your prayer life, you've got a poor theology. Daniel didn't just resign himself to the sovereignty of God as if he had no place in that plan of God. And we've said it many times, not only does God ordain the ends, he also ordains the means. 
For example, does God sovereignly choose to elect people to salvation? The answer is yes. You know, Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God's the one who does that, right? But does that mean that we don't have a role in seeing people come to faith in Christ? Absolutely we do, right? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. I have a role in that. How will they hear without a preacher? You have a role in the fulfillment of seeing people come to know the Lord. Do you believe that the will of the Lord is going to be done and that his kingdom is going to come? Sure, we all believe that. But still, we're told to pray. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why are we praying for what God already promised? Because that's how he taught us to pray. We, we are to pray because we're part of that plan. So even in the book of Revelation, you know, Apostle John has just received Revelation, 22 chapters, letting him know that Jesus is coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back quickly. And then what does he pray in chapter 22? Even so, Lord, come Lord Jesus. It's like, I just spent 22 chapters telling you I'm coming back. But then that became his prayer. Even quickly, come Lord Jesus. And in the same way, Daniel's prayer is one of those means that God uses to bring about the fulfillment. Again, listen, listen to what he says in Jeremiah 29. Look at, look at it again, 29 and verse 12. Think, think about this. And again, it's just kind of pulling all this together. Listen to what Jeremiah says in verse 12, chapter 29. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. So he's already promised them that you're going to come back, but part of this fulfillment is that you're going to pray to me, and I'm going to listen to you when you pray to me. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And Daniel is only doing his part. He's saying, Lord, you said that you would send these people back, but I'm supposed to pray for that. And and now I'm going to, to do what Jeremiah has told me to do. I'm going to be a part of seeing that fulfillment happen. Daniel rightly understood, Jeremiah, that I have a part to play in this fulfillment. It's God's ordained means to his ordained ends. And this leads us to an important observation to make. We are to pray for what God promises. We're to pray for what God promises. Sometimes I think that people have this uh, idea that, that powerful praying is like wrestling God down and wearing him out until he finally agrees with your plan for your life. You know, God, I have a wonderful plan for my life, and I'm just trying to convince you of it, right? And we sometimes feel like powerful prayer is wrestling God down until he agrees. Is that your idea of what powerful prayer is? Yes. <laughs> well, it's wrong. <laughs> you might say, well, what happened in Genesis 32? Isn't that like wrestling God down until he finally cries uncle? You know, in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the man all night. Later on, he identifies this man that he was wrestling with as God. Genesis 32, verse 30, Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. I've wrestled with God and I survived. So so here we we would think of that, like, isn't that powerful prayer, wrestling God down? God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And then finally, I get what I want. And in this encounter, we find Jacob wrestling with God for a blessing, for protection from his brother Esau. And Esau, if you remember, had sworn that he's going to take Jacob's life. And sometimes people turn to this as an example of striving with God until he finally gives in and gives you your request. That's not at all what's happening in Genesis 32. Jacob was not changing God's mind about what he would do. (laughs) Back in chapter 25 of uh, Genesis God already promised his mother, Rebekah, that the older brother Esau would serve the younger Jacob. Chapter 27, Isaac told Jacob that he would be blessed. Chapter 28, God tells him, Behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. Genesis 31, verse 3, God says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. God had already promised Jacob that he would return. God already promised Jacob that he would be blessed. God already promised him that that what what I've told you, I'm going to do it. 
So now when we get to chapter 32 and Jacob's here rustling, so I won't let you go until you bless me. I've already told you I'm going to bless you. <laughs> You're not here rustling me down, trying to change my mind. He's praying in a moment of desperation. I mean, he sees the enemy approaching and he's just wrestling with God, but all he's doing is actually praying for what was already promised. You get that? Same thing happens in the book of, of Exodus. After the children of Israel corrupted themselves, remember they created this golden calf and started worshiping it. You know, Aaron comes up with this crazy story like, I, I don't know what happened. You know, they, they gave me the gold and I put it in the fire and out popped this calf. I mean, you can't blame me, Moses, for this. There they are worshiping this, this golden calf. And God speaks to Moses. He says, now let me alone. Like, like just, just get out the way, Moses. <laughs> that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Exodus 32, then find Moses, he entreated the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Change your mind about doing harm to your people. And you have Moses interceding with the God of Israel, wrestling them down like, Lord, no, you can't do this. Don't, don't, don't do this, Lord. But all that Moses was pleading with God to do is what he already promised. <laughs> Exodus chapter 3, verse 17. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what God had already promised. So here you have Moses interceding but all he's doing is laying claim to the promises of God. He's, he's, he's praying for what God had promised. And this is what is at the core of powerful prayers. We're, we're aligning ourselves with the will of God and we're praying his word back to him. That's powerful praying. First John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What, what is powerful praying? It's lining yourself up with the will of God, even wrestling yourself to get in line with what has God promised. And that's when I pray with faith because I'm saying, God, do what you said you would do. I'm trusting you to do what you said you would do. It's not name it and claim it. You know, I'm waiting for that Rolls Royce to pull up. You know, it's not, I'm waiting for my, my billion dollar jet or whatever else you want to trust God for. God has not promised you that, right? So we go back to what has God promised me? That's what I go before the Lord with. And I pray according to his will. That is powerful prayer. Daniel was praying according to the will of God. And he's simply praying his word back to him. Actually, he's even using some of the specific words of scripture. Look back at uh, Daniel chapter 9. Just want to show you this real quick. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, take a look at verse 4. Look at how he opens up this prayer. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Where did, where did Daniel get that from? Flip over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll go ahead and start at verse 7. Listen to what the, the word of the Lord says. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, listen to this, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. What do you think Daniel's doing? All Daniel is doing is he's bringing the word of God back to him. Lord, this is what you promised. I'm not saying this because I just made it up. Lord, this is what you promised. And it's almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. It's an example in Scripture of praying Scripture. Later on, Nehemiah is now going to quote from Daniel. 
Nehemiah 1 verse 5, he says, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. It's just a repetition of scripture again. Scripture, quoting scripture and praying scripture. And my most effective times of prayer have always been with an open Bible. Opening my Bible, looking at the promises of God and praying those promises back to the Lord. My most effective times in prayer have always been with an open Bible. And it's ho- I hope that's what we're modeling here on Sunday. When I, when I read John 17 and then pray those themes back, like, like that's using Scripture to pray back to the Lord. It's the Word of God that generates powerful prayer. Dale Ralph, Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says, Christians should let the Bible become their prayer book. If I'm reading of the marvelous description of Yahweh's kingdom in Micah 4, should it not goad me to prayer? Should I not pray for the fulfillment? Or when I happen upon Romans eleven twenty three to 24, ought it not incite me to pray that God would graft Israel into his people again? When one reads the, the assurance of Isaiah 33, 6, and he will be the stability of your times, don't wavering and suffering believers come to mind? And don't you delight to, to ask God that he would show himself to them in his character? Let scripture drive your prayer. MacArthur writes this. He says, the word generates prayer because when it speaks of God, we long to commune with him. When it speaks of blessing, we long to praise him. When it speaks of promise, we long to receive it. When it speaks of sin, it leads us to pray for the loss. The word of God causes prayer. And Daniel's prayer, like all true prayer, began with an understanding of the word of God. Daniel aligned himself with the word of God and the will of God, and then he prayed fervently for it. He gave his attention to it. Back in Daniel chapter 9, he says, So I gave my attention to the Lord. Literally, the, the, the word I gave my attention to is I gave him my face. I, I gave him my full, undivided attention. Like, like I, I looked up. You know, like, you know, sometimes you're talking to a, a child or, you know, maybe some of you are teachers, and it's just like, no, look at me, look at me, all eyes up. You know, it's like, look, look over here. It's giving me, me your attention. That's the literal Hebrew here. I gave him my face. I gave him my attention to seek him by prayer and supplication. Psalm 27, verse 8, David says, when, when you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, your face shall I seek. And that's what Daniel's doing. He's seeking the face of, of God, giving him his undivided attention. The word for prayer is a general word for prayer. Supplication is the request of prayer. And before he gets to any supplication, asking God for anything, it he opens it up by this weighty confession of sin. Weighty confession of sin. Look again at chapter 9 and verse 3. It says, I gave him my attention, seek him by prayer with, and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. These are all signs associated with mourning and grief. There's a link between fasting and mourning. And if you do a word study on fasting in Scripture, the, the overwhelming conclusion is that fasting was associated with periods of mourning, urgency, repentance from sin, life-changing decisions. You know, it's not just something that you do as a routine. You know, hey, it's my fast day today. You know, I'm going to fast. No, it was associated with these times of grief. I mean, when, when the light, life just kind of weighs you down to the point where it's like nowhere else to go, that's where fasting was used in Scripture. And what a person was doing externally was a sign of what was going on internally. The idea that fasting was meant to be used as some kind of key to unlock your spiritual potential or communion with God, or it's just not backed up by the Scripture. In fact, the teaching that I, I need to weaken my body in order to, to be more spiritual has more in common with pagan religion than it does with Christianity. Fasting was never meant to be some kind of hidden pathway to God, but it was the, during a time of mourning, grief, urgency, danger, in the context of difficulty, life-changing decisions, conviction of sin. That's where fasting came into place. When you examine the Scriptures, the only time that fasting was ever commanded was actually in relationship to sin, like on the Day of Atonement, which Acts 27 and verse 9 calls the fast. Or like the time when Nineveh realized that it was heading for destruction and they commanded a fast, everybody fast. Daniel understood that Israel was in the position it was in because of their sin. That's why we're here. And we'll get more into this next week, but I already mentioned that Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had warned Judah that there's calamity that's coming. 
It's about to fall on you as a result of your sin. But how did they respond when Jeremiah came to them and warned them of judgment to come? Flip back to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36. And we'll close with, with this thought here. But how did, how did the, the nation of Judah respond when the prophet comes to them to, to warn them? You're, you're headed for calamity. Turn away from your sins. Humble yourselves before the Lord. How did they respond when the prophet Jeremiah came to them? Look at verse 1 of chapter 36. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah, and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. So it's been going on for a while. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way, then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Take, take up, right. Let them know about the calamity that's to come. Perhaps they'll hear and they'll turn every man from his evil way. How do they respond to this message? Drop down to verse 21. After he gave it to the king, it says, Then the king sent Jehudi, one of his servants, to get the scroll. And he took it out of the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and Jehudi read it to the king, as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with the fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Let me, let me tell you what I think about the, the word of your God. You know, pulls out the knife and starts to shred it. And then makes fuel for his fire with the word of God. They, they weren't afraid. They weren't concerned. They didn't rend their garments. And basically what Daniel was saying is, if you won't mourn, for your sins, I'll mourn for you. If you won't mourn for your sins, I will mourn for you because I am grieved over the sins of Judah. There's nothing that should break our souls the way that sin does. And the pain of his soul was experienced in the pain of his stomach. He refused to be comforted with the joys of food. He put on sackcloth because he refused for his body to be comforted with soft clothes. Sackcloth was a rough coarse, itchy material, usually made out of goat's hair, poor quality, and it was an external sign and symbol of grief. And he refused to be comforted with the refreshing springs or a cool bath. He would sit in the dust and the ashes that, he, that, he, that were left behind from the burnt earth. He would pour it on top of himself. Abraham said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord even though I am but dust and ashes. And Daniel recognized that that's what I am. I'm but dust and ashes. And I'm going to pour on top of myself the dust and the ash. It wasn't a little dab on the forehead. <laughs> he poured out on himself dust and ashes. And in each of these expressions, the fasting, the sackcloth, the ashes, it was an outward, physical expression of what was going on in my heart. And by the time you get to the New Testament, it all became external. Remember that. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you, sit, when, you, when, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Take the dust and the ashes off because you're using it as an external symbol of like, hey, everybody see how pious I am? You know, look at all the ash and the dust on my face. Jesus says, go wash your face. <laughs> Just take that off because it's all about the externals now. It needs to be in the heart. It needs to be in the heart. Go wash yourself. Don't present yourself like that before anybody. But here, Daniel is doing externally what was going on internally. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm but dust and ashes. I refuse to be comforted. I'm mourning for my people. He felt the pain deeply. And like I said, he's basically saying, if, if you're not going to mourn, I'll do it for you. Have you ever mourned over sin? Have you ever mourned over somebody else's sin? Have you ever felt so beat up and desperate for God that you've even lost your appetite for food? Like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't even feel like eating anymore because of what's going on. If you've never experienced any grief over sin at all, you've got a different problem. 
because I'm not sure if you even know the Lord. <laughs> have, you, have you experienced any grief over your sin? The sin of the people around you, have you experienced any grief? Does it bother you at all when people sin? Or is it just like, hey, that's just what people do? Does it, does it, does it destroy you on the inside when you see the sins of others? If you're broken, if you're crushed, the Bible says, I won't despise you. God says, I won't despise you. Jesus is the one that you can turn to even in your times of grief. And Jesus gives this word in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christians are those who see sin for what it is, and we mourn over our sins for what they are, and we allow God to bring his comfort to us. We're not those who comfort ourselves in spite of our sins. We're the ones who mourn over our sins and allow God to comfort us. <laughs> and we also mourn over those who don't mourn for themselves. We mourn for prodigal sons and daughters. We mourn over the unsaved and disobedient spouse. We mourn over the, the family members and coworkers who are walking in sin. We mourn over ministries that haven't seen the light. We carry our burdens before the Lord in prayer. And this is what Daniel teaches us. And Daniel has so much more to teach us, but we're grateful that he's left this record so we can be taught how to pray. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text, Lord. There's so much more to learn, but we're thankful that Daniel has taught us. We're thankful that you have taught us <laughs> because you're the one who who brought these things to his attention as he looked over the word of God. Now, Father, I pray that we would align ourselves with your word, that we would pray your word back to you, uh, that we would have powerful prayers because we're, we're standing on the promises of your word. Uh, so, Father, I pray that you would uh, use these things to, to help us to, to be sanctified, uh, to, to help us to look more like our Savior, uh, the one who bore our sins. And because we mourn over our sins, one day we will be comforted. We're grateful for that promise, and we hold on to that too. In Jesus' name we praise and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.